So this is the seventh of our planned nine meetings. It's going quickly. And uh, we'll meet next week, and we'll meet the week after that. And then uh, we won't meet the week after that. Well, we, we'll talk about, about it, all right? <laughs> it does feel like we only just... I know, I know. Well, we're, we'll cover a lot of ground the next couple of weeks, and then we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll see if we, we'll see how our schedules are, okay? Um, we'll talk about it next week. We'll, we'll talk about it this week and talk to you about it next week. Let's start with um, a famous um, uh, Hebrew song from Psalm 34. Uh, and uh, it's, Hine matovu manaim shevet achim gam yachad. If you don't know Hebrew, it's a mouthful. It means, oh, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters can dwell together as one. And uh, I'm not going to teach you. We'll just sing it. Some of us here know it. We'll just sing it a couple. But that's what we're singing. place of the heart. Welcome back from our, our break this past week. We've not been together for a couple of weeks now. And um, we left off last time looking at the birth narrative, the infancy narrative of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. And we had imagined that somehow in one class we were going to go through Matthew, Luke, 
and John in her class. And by the end of two hours, we had barely finished discussing Matthew's uh, infancy narrative. So today we're going to pick up Luke and John and try our best to cover the highlights of both of those. Um, but before we dive into that, if you want to offer a few words by way of framing or where we sure, are. Sure, sure. So, so one of the things I've learned from Matthew about uh, critical biblical scholarship on the New Testament is the uh, consensus about when each gospel was composed. And that's been the framework. And I find it very both useful and um, persuasive, uh, which is that Mark which has no birth narrative, if you recall, begins, just begins with Jesus going down to the Jordan where John the Baptist is, uh, immerses him. And that's the beginning of John, no, of, of Mark, no birth narrative. And then, and, and it's assumed that, that the Gospel of Mark is the earliest composed of the Gospels. Then Matthew has a birth narrative, which we studied, which is built on um, connecting uh, uh, Matthew to um, the uh, various lines in the biblical prophets and also connecting him to Moses as a baby who's being hunted by the evil king and, and, and a whole new story woven. And we looked at the Magi who, it turns out, are taken from um, one of the Magi in the Jewish tradition who come to Pharaoh at the same time is Balaam. And then, so there's this tradition of astrologers coming from the Bible, coming into the story, which is to say again, this is a narrative woven from the, the, uh, uh, the sacred text and lore of the Jews of the first century, naturally. We're so used to disconnecting Christianity from Judaism. The purpose of this class, a rabbi and a priest study the Gospels, is to contextualize these writers as who they were. Jews, writing for Jews about a Jew. Right? So naturally, they are using all the cultural touch points and, and um, um, themes and all those kinds of things that would make a story powerful to a bunch of first century Jews, right? All the ways you would reference ancient great people and ancient story. That's what we're looking at. Then in the next decade, perhaps, the Gospel of Luke is composed. And Matthew has explained to me that scholars think that both Matthew and Luke used Mark as a text, but were not necessarily in communication with each other. Um, and uh, so in Luke, which we're going to explore today, uh, we find a different birth narrative. Okay, it's not the same. And as we were discussing two weeks ago, um, the way st what happens, what we do almost naturally as, uh, as storytellers, which we all are, is we... Uh, um, uh, What's the word? Harmonize. Harmonize. Synthesize. Synthesize. Conflate. So that it becomes one story. And now we're taking it apart. This isn't a religious service. This is a study class. We're taking it apart and saying, oh, let's look at these different stories and what can we learn uh, by exploring them and their differences. Uh, and then when we get to John, 
which we will, will do today, I presume, um, we see something completely different than Matthew and Luke. And John is presumed to be the last one composed. And by this point, the story of Jesus the Messiah has become a cosmic tale and is uh, referencing the blueprint of creation itself. So I've been thinking of it myself, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, is the legend grows. You know, it's like the move, you know, Jesus, the legend grows. And the legend is growing to, con to be, so that Jesus becomes not an historical figure, but a um, uh, cosmic, eternal, cosmic, eternal, mythic, yes. Uh, and uh, that seems to be the progression that we can trace by looking at no birth narrative, one birth narrative, the second birth narrative, and then the cosmic birth narrative. And so that's, that's the overarching pattern. Does that make sense, everybody? Uh, that's what I've been learning about with, with Matthew. So I wanted Matthew to take us into the Luke narrative with that as our framework. Joan? Quick question. So, um, rough estimate of when Matthew was written? So, so the general consensus among contemporary scholars is that Mark is written around 70 and Matthew and Luke are written in the 80s, like between 80, 90, something like that, and that John is written between 90 and 110, like the late first, maybe even very early second century. Um, so these are all in the second half of the first century. And it bears repeating that this is in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Again, I'll say it, this was the greatest cataclysm that had happened to the Jewish people in, in, since in hundreds and hundreds of years and remained the greatest cataclysm until the Holocaust. I mean, you could say the expulsion of Jews from Spain ranks up there in 1492, but, uh, the, but, we don't, but the Jewish people as a whole sanctify the memory of the destruction of the temple because it required us to completely transform our uh, understanding of ourselves. If we didn't have the temple in Jerusalem anymore, who are we? That question, who are we? One of the answers is the answers of the Gospels. Well, maybe we are transforming into what will become Christianity. The rab others that we call the rabbis have a different one. No, now in the absence of the temple, we have to sanctify the memory of the temple, but we have to serve God now through Torah, uh, worship, and deeds of loving kindness. That's how Judaism reframes what we do now that we don't have the temple anymore. But it's really fair, I think, and even accurate to say that both these Jewish, early Jewish followers of Jesus, and others, the rabbis, and others around the Jewish world have a cataclysmic reassessment uh, to do. Uh, the center of the universe has just been destroyed. The Holy of Holies is gone. What does it mean now to be a Jew? And if you think of the Gospels as one of the answers to that question in the wake of cataclysm, I find that to be very... Um, uh, worthwhile as a framing. And the amazing thing that it does, the helpful thing it does, it reminds us that, so we often think of 
Um, Judaism as the parent religion and Christianity as the child. Actually, rabbinic Judaism and Christianity are both the children of Second Temple Judaism, which is gone. And so they, they are two responses evolving Siblings. in the first century. We're sort of sibling traditions. Um, and, um, and today, God willing, we would say two valid responses, two different evolutionary trajectories of this earlier tradition um, that need not be in competition, right. but, but can be in collaboration. Tragically and, got into a mortal combat. Right, yes. Right. Um, so, yes. Well, I'm wondering So uh, different denominations within Judaism. I think it's probably best we don't go into later fragmentations right now and just steer back to the text, but do you want to say... I will say, denominational Judaism emerges in the 19th century. Okay, so we're, it's like we're 1,800 years before that. That's all I need. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So, so one of the things we've been doing as we've looked at these texts, um, we've reminded ourselves that something that both what we might call secular fundamentalists and religious fundamentalists hold in common is their belief in literalism. So the secular fundamentalist says, well, if the text isn't literally factually true, it's not true. And the religious fundamentalist says, well, if the text isn't literally factually true, it's not true. And they just disagree on whether it is or isn't. You know, the religious fundamentalist says it is literally factually true, and the secular fundamentalist says it isn't and rejects it. And we've been looking at a third alternative. What if truth isn't in the literal factuality of the text, but in the inner meaning of the text? And so we've been looking at the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke's gospel, and, and then the prologue to John's gospel. Um, we can see especially these birth narratives as what um, Marcus Borg, who we've talked about, and his collaborator, Dom Crossan, they write a book called The First Christmas, and they talk about these two narratives as parabolic overtures to the gospel story of Jesus. So it's it's a parable overture. Oh, parabolic as a, yeah, as as a in parable. parable. So <laughs> o- a parable overture that is sort of giving you the themes of the gospel in miniature, an overture that's telling you, here are the themes, here's what's going to unfold in this story. And then we move into the gospel proper, which is where Mark begins the story. But each of them give us a setup, a framing about what is to come. Um, And so we unpacked, in part, Matthew's sort of parable overture, and now we're turning to Luke's. Um, But I find that really helpful. And part of the question, as Jonathan said, you know, part of what we see happening is um, the question, how is, how is this human life so filled with the Spirit of God? And Paul talks about um, this in the wake of the sort of death-resurrection experience of Jesus. He's declared Son of God. And then Mark sort of says, that's not early enough. And Mark's Gospel says, no, it is baptism the Spirit descends and declares him um, this and then it's as if Matthew and Luke say, that's not early enough. And then they say, no, it's at his birth that the Spirit descended and declared him. And then John, we'll see, says, that's not early enough. No, it was in pre-eternity before the world began. And so we're, and we can see this as a deepening unfolding in, in meaning. You know, this isn't, this isn't a fabrication. This is a deepening experience of meaning making happening. Um, so Luke's story, if you've got the packet, you can, you can turn to it. And one of the interesting things about Luke's story, it actually gives us 
two infancy narratives. One for John the Baptist, who we spent a lot of time looking at a few weeks ago, and one for Jesus uh, of Nazareth. Uh, and so Matthew only gives us a story about Jesus. Luke gives us a story about John and Jesus. And a few of the things that we can just note right away are that um, Luke centers the story in a different way. Matthew's story really centered on Joseph, on the man. Here's a man whose wife is pregnant during the betrothal period before the home taking. And what does he do? Um, does he put her away quietly? Does he make a big scene? And it centers around the male experience of, uh, in this story. Um, and Mary is kind of a background character in Matthew's telling. She's not really front and center. Luke's gospel centers Mary in the story. Um, and she's brought front and center. And this is something, this is a special concern of Luke's gospel, is the place and role of women in the story. Luke, more than any of the other Gospels, actually um, centers and balances women in his narrative. Um, some people have even speculated maybe the Gospel of Luke was written by a woman, um, but he certainly had concern for women in the story. Um, he names more women in the text than any other Gospel author, and often when he tells the story of a man, he will then balance it with the story of a woman. Um, so women are centered in this, both Mary and then John's mother, who we'll see is named uh, Elizabeth. And we begin, what you have here in your text is, is the story of um, Jesus, but we might want to flip to the story of um, John first. So, I'm, I'm, yes, John the Baptist. So I'm just going to open my text here. Um, so, oh, right, we didn't include this. Yeah, we've just given you in the packet the Jesus story, but we want to give you a little background on the John story as well. Um, so I'm going to read a bit of the opening. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And both were getting on in years. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Yeah, or actually, I, I jumped to verse 5. Oh, There's a little five. intro. Oh, yeah, so, okay. so we're getting a, a classic trope in Jewish storytelling here, the barren woman, right? This is, this is a common theme. Um, do you want to comment? Sure. So, um, uh, oh, right, i got to look in my version here. Right, I got it, I got it. Um, okay, so in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named... Zechariah, who belonged to the priesthood of Abiyah, and his wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Being a descendant of Aaron, priest, priest priestly lineage. But uh, it, let's assume, as is true in the Torah, that as far as we can tell, every name is, is not a random name. So Elizabeth. Well, who's Elizabeth? Yeah, if we assume, one way to read this is that this is literal factual reporting, Another way to read this is that this is a parable overture and that these aren't necessarily historical memories and names, but a, a, a framing, a setup for the story, which would mean the names being chosen are very symbolically intentional. And, and resonant. Uh, so yes, there's no reason why we would know who, who John the Baptist's parents were. Right? We, <laughs> there's no historical record of that. He's never referred to as John, son of this and that. Uh, so, and this is the only place in the entire Gospels where John's parentage 
is discussed. So let's assume it's a parable. Um, Elizabeth is in Hebrew Elisheba. Elisheba is the wife of Aaron in, in the book of Exodus. Okay? Um, so, so they are not just naming her as a descendant of Aaron, they are naming the, the same name as Elisheba, in Elizabeth in Greek, who is the wife of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Who is the, the other sibling? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam. Miriam in Greek is Mary. Okay, so as we read on, we're going to find out that they've chosen the name of uh, Moses' sister and sister-in-law, uh, who are going to be, because uh, later Mary and Elizabeth turn out to be cousins in this story. So again, we want to acknowledge that we're going back to the first family of Judaism, right? Uh, in uh, trying to link the efforts to link Jesus to the heart of Jewish tradition. Does that make sense? Uh, so now Zechariah is another story. Zechariah is a prophet, uh, one, of the one of the latter prophets in the Bible, who prophesies about uh, the high priest Joshua um, and then says, uh, uh, Hearken well, O high priest Joshua, this is Zechariah prophesying in God's name. For you and your fellow priests sitting before you, for those men, the men in a vision he just described, are a sign that I am going to bring my servant the branch. Okay, the branch, the t uh, well, how else is that referred to? The stem, He's the referred to as, a, as a, a, shoot. A, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Right. So Zechariah, now again, we said this last class, Listeners to this would know, it, they didn't necessarily know all the prophets, but there were favorite quotes and passages, and this is one of them. So by naming the father, ultimately, of John the Baptist and identifying him with Zechariah, and there's an association, again, with this, um, with this verse about a shoot, is a, a branch, a sprout is going to come out of Jesse. So there's lots more amazing stuff in Zechariah, prophecies, but we'll, I'll leave it at that for now. So we're told that these are, are righteous, Torah-observant Jews, and that Elizabeth is barren. And so we're, giving, we're being given essentially a story like the story like of Sarah, the story Abraham of and Sarah. Hannah. Hannah, right. All the barren women in, in the Bible who, uh, whose wombs just... Uh, for some reason, cannot bear. And uh, uh, so we're hearing about Moses' family, and we're getting echoes of Sarah and Abraham, all in the first couple of lines. Then we're told that uh, Zechariah, once when he was serving as priest before God, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Yochanan in Hebrew. God's grace. That's what Yochanan means. 
He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Zechariah is in the Holy of Holies, offering incense, or in the inner sanctuary, and has a vision. Uh, and in the vision, he's told uh, that his wife's going to have a son. That's uh, remarkable. Uh, and then he's also told he shouldn't drink wine or strong what, what was the line exactly? Strong drink. Strong drink. What, uh, uh, if you know about, uh, in, in the book of Numbers, there's a category of, um, called a, a Nazarite. A Nazarite, not related to Nazareth. A Nazarite is someone who takes a vow to God to never cut their hair or drink any uh, product of grapes or intoxicant for a, a period of time. And it's some way of making a vow of, of, of uh, holiness. Uh, the most famous Nazarite in the uh, Bible is Samson, who is told when an angel comes to Samson's father uh, in the book of Judges and tells him this and says, but you, your child must never drink wine or strong, so strong drink and will be a great leader. Okay, so that's the Samson story. So again, it's like, how much of this is intentional? How much of it is just the way you tell stories? Uh, I don't know, but what I want you to hear is this story doesn't come out of thin air. It comes out of thick air, right? <laughs> it comes out of a rich cultural context of Jews a, a pulling in the themes that make for a holy story and a story with portent. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, yes Gary. It strikes me that there... In the, in, the, in, the, in the thread of barren women, that there's a metaphor, and I wonder if this is employed in, uh, in Midrash at all, that these women teach us that we are barren and cannot bear without being attuned and listening to a higher voice. Yes, that seems to be the message of the Torah, that, that we are spiritually stopped up until we allow God's Spirit to flow through us. Yes, that seems to be a continuous theme. And so you'll remember there's usually when, when this report is given, there's scoffing, like Sarah laughed, right, when she hears the news that she will bear a child in her old age. And so similarly, Zechariah here says, um, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. That's what Abraham said. Right, right. This is essentially a quote. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. Now this is significant because um, <coughs> Gabriel only shows up once before in Hebrew scripture, and this is his first appearance in Christian scripture. So the angel, the appearances in uh, Matthew's gospel, it just says an angel of the Lord appeared, a messenger of God appeared. So there's no naming, it's just the angelic function. But in the intertestamental period, this whole development of angelology occurs, and you get <laughs> angels with names and roles, and um, it gets elaborated more and more. And so by go. this point, when this name, I am, so the angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. And Zechariah is made mute. Um, but who is this Gabriel that suddenly appears? 
So let's talk about angels for a little bit. Again, you need to put your histar history hat on here because angels develop over time. In the Bible, angels have no, no angel has a name. There are no names in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, of, for angels. They are emissaries or emanations, functions, functions, expressions of God, right? They don't have names. And, uh, um, but by the time of the book of Daniel, which is the last book composed historically in the course of the, it's the, it's the, it's the youngest book included in the canon of the Hebrew Bible, um, we hear a passage where Gabriel appears to Daniel. So it appears by the second century BCE, angels had names. And uh, there's many, many of them. And Gabriel is the most prominent one. Gabriel is the messenger, the announcer. And so when you read rabbinic midrashim <coughs> about the three angels who come to Abraham and Sarah to announce the birth, not in the Bible, but in the Midrashim, meaning 2nd, 1st century BCE, around then, that angel's name is Gabriel. So I'm expressing that again to show that this is the context of the time. Gabriel is, Gabriel is, is a big figure at this point, even though Gabriel never appears uh, in any of the uh, early books of the Bible. Does that make sense? Except for Daniel, which almost didn't even make the cut. Right, Daniel almost <laughs> didn't make the cut. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, Gabriel, or Gabriel, when you break it down, I know L is... Right. God. What is the first Might. Uh, the might of God. Yeah. Then there's Bichael, is who is like God. Uriel is God's light. Raphael is God's healing. And they have all these good names. Which, again, points to the idea that these aren't names so much as divine functions. When God expresses God's might or God's healing, that's, you know, Raphael, Gabriel. Um. But as the lore develops, we know angels get their own personalities. One of them even falls, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, it, again, just to keep this historical uh, progression in mind, Satan, and I know some of you have heard this before, in the Bible, it, sorry, in the Hebrew Bible, Satan is an, um, a descriptive, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noun, it's not a name. It means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it appears in the book of Job and elsewhere that there is an angel in the heavenly court who is the Satan, the prosecuting not angel. Not a name, but a function, a role. Right. Only later does Satan get personhood as an angelic, uh, a spirit, angelic spiritual being. And boy, when you start studying angel lore, it's like, uh, it never ends, right? Uh, if you get into it. But it's important to understand that that's, that's an historical development, which is present by the time of the Gospel of Luke in Judaism. Angels have names, and there are many stories about angels. <coughs> So the story continues. We're told after those days, his wife, uh, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. Um, and of course, for a woman in this culture, it was a disgrace to not 
conceived. Um, so her disgrace has been removed. So that sort of gets bracketed. Now we're, we've told John the Baptist has been conceived. We've been given an overture for John's story. And then we shift to Mary's story. Which you have on this text. Which you have, right. And so this is where the story picks up. In the sixth month, and we've just told uh, Elizabeth, she's been in uh, seclusion five months, and so we're sort of picking up now. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, or hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. This is what angels always say in biblical texts. Don't be afraid. Um, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Uh, he will be great, will be called son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Uh, of his kingdom there will be no end. So... Here is the setup um, for Jesus. And <clears throat> do you want to jump in? Um, uh, I want to talk about Mary as an, again, <coughs> Mary in Hebrew is Miriam. Miriam's a remarkable figure in the Hebrew Bible. She doesn't have a husband. Miriam is never identified with as the wife, wife of anybody. Think about that. That's, with the exception, again, as I said last time, of Deborah, that is, and some other um, wise women of the Bible, it's an ancient status in Israel that there was such a thing as a, a wise woman who was like, not identified. But Miriam is the greatest because she's also a prophetess. And she's the sister of Moses. And she doesn't have any children. Miriam has no offspring in the Bible. Think of what a remarkable figure Miriam is in the Hebrew Bible. And the, and, and the mother of Jesus, Yoshua, is identified as Miriam. So what a lineage. It's, I was just thinking about that and reflecting. And um, there is reason to think that historically his mother was named Miriam. Um, because the earliest gospel text, which is Mark, does reference Jesus, the son of Miriam, and it also references his siblings. Uh, when he returns for the first time to Nazareth and preaches in his hometown synagogue, we're told that, that people said, where does he get this wisdom? Where does this come from? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Miriam, and are not his brothers, um, James and uh, Jude and Joseph here among us and are not his sisters here with us as well. And so there's a memory that he was the son of someone named Mary or Miriam. And it's a throwaway line in Mark's gospel. Um, he doesn't develop it or make any big deal of it. And of course, by this point, it is a very common name. But the unusual thing there is that he's named the son of Miriam rather than the son of whoever his father was. Um, and so that's, that's an unusual extremely way. Extremely unusual in, the, in, in our biblical text. So, so what some scholars have said, and we didn't really explore this um, last time in class, uh, that there is uh, what develops as an illegitimacy narrative around Jesus' birth. Um, did he not have a father? Was he illegitimate? Um, 
and I'll put that in quotation marks because hopefully we would not call any child illegitimate. Um, but one scholar, uh, Jane Schauberg, Roman Catholic scholar, she looks at these infancy narratives, and I've always found this uh, a very enlightening way of reading them, an interesting way of reading them. I, I don't think it's the only way to read them, but she says perhaps these were never intended as virginal conception narratives. Perhaps they were always intended as illegitimacy narratives um, that were nevertheless saying the illegitimate one is legitimate, is of God. Um, so last time we looked in Matthew's genealogy and he lists four women who all conceived in strange and inappropriate ways um, as the sort of setup. And it's a lineage of 42 generations of men with these four women's names just sort of dropped in. And when you unpack each of the women's stories, um, you know, it's, you can listen to the audio from last time if you want to get the stories, we want to unpack them again. Um, but then we're told, and then Mary um, conceives during the period of her betrothal and her husband wants to put her away, but the angel says, don't be afraid to take her uh, into your home, for the child is, is, is holy, is of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And what Schauberg argues is that the text never says the child doesn't have a human father. It just says the child is holy, is of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so uh, she argues that there were circulating traditions around Jesus' illegitimacy, potentially Mary's rape or seduction during the period of her betrothal, and that in that cultural context, if a woman was put away in that situation, she would basically lose her livelihood, her future, um, it's going to be hard to find another marriage, etc., etc. Um, and so, what if the father could choose to see this child as holy and take, um, continue with the home-taking? Um, so she argues that maybe we've been misreading the narratives. They weren't trying to say that this was a virginal conception, they were trying to say this illegitimate child is nevertheless a holy child and of God. Um, which is interesting because it theologically, whether it's historically accurate or not, I find it as a Christian theologically compelling because it says God is on the side of the outcast and the marginalized. God chooses whom God wills and God can raise up one um, you know, from the least of society and declare them holy. Um, Beautiful. And just a minute, Hattie, I need to, and then I'll, I'll recognize you. So that's why I, as a Jew, find this plausible. Also, as a, as a theory, uh, because throughout the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, God chooses the runt of the litter. God chooses the younger over the older. God chooses King David, if you recall. I read this to before in the book of Samuel, where... Uh, God looks at uh, where Samuel uh, um, looks at the strapping older brother of David and God says I don't uh, uh, you look at outward appearances but I look at the heart and chooses David so and then there's of course the narrative of the exodus from Egypt which is our our um, uh, our core understanding of ourselves we are the disenfranchised and God hears our cry. Right? That's the Jewish story. And again, the Jews and Christians of the first century sharing the same story, sharing it today. Um, so then it repeats over and over and over again. Do not mistreat the widow, the orphan, or the stranger. Widow and orphan mean fatherless. Orphan means fatherless 
in the Bible because without a patriarchal protector, you have no one who can legally protect you. Widow only refers to women, right, who have lost their protectors. And the stranger, the stranger means someone who does not belong to a clan, who comes from somewhere else, has no protector. God is their protector. So that is fundamental to how, we, how, we, how the ancient, ancient Hebrews up till today understand God. God is, hears the cry of the oppressed and the maltreated. Mm -hmm. And so it's entirely plausible that given especially Jesus' teachings and the way he reaches out to the, uh, to the most marginalized, the most marginalized throughout, consistently throughout the Gospels, um, that maybe the Jewish followers of Jesus are upping the ante and saying not only does God not choose necessarily the firstborn and the strongest and the mightiest, but maybe God even chooses someone who is not even considered in biblical law a legitimate offspring. Um, I can see that as a plausible uh, um, uh, explanation. It's, it's a powerful reading of the text, and that's not the only way you can read the text, but what it does, it actually says that within the text, the text <coughs> itself permits that reading. Um, and um, Jane Schauberg, in her scholarship, she shows even the way during the New Testament period, um, so we looked at Matthew's text, he quotes the prophet Isaiah who says, um, an Alma, a young woman or a maiden, is with child. And that he attaches that to Mary, but he uses the Septuagint Greek translation that says Parthenos, which can be translated as virgin. Uh, the virgin is with child. But she shows that in the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew scriptures, Parthenos is used also in a wider range. And specifically it's used, you'll remember the story, some of you, of the rape of Dina? When she is raped, the Septuagint translation twice after that horrible act refers to her as Parthenos, as virgin, after um, the rape. And so we can see that that text doesn't necessarily um, mean you have to read um, a virginal, you don't have to read virginal conception into the text. Um, we've assumed it's there, but Schauberg says, hey, maybe it, maybe it was never there from the get-go. Um, yeah, Hattie was waiting. Oh yeah. Well, I'm I'm confused. I'm not making a connection. Um, it says the gospel according to Luke says Joseph was of the house of David, and later it says God of Jesus, God the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor. David. I, but Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. So where does the ancestry of David enter into it? So, so what Hattie's say? It doesn't say anywhere. It doesn't say anything about Mary's. What birth. Hattie's asking is if both Matthew and and we'll come to Luke's genealogy, which he puts in a very different place. Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy. Luke actually closes his overture with the genealogy. So it's at a different point in the text. But um, both of them chase Jesus' lineage back through Joseph, and then both of them say, but he wasn't his biological father. Oh. Um, and so, okay, well then, does that somehow invalidate the Davidic lineage? 
it doesn't biblically speaking because if you take a child if he takes him as his father gives him legal protection adopts him as a son he, he adopts him into his lineage and so that's so we're not given her lineage because at the time today we often think of Judaism as matrilineal we trace it matrilineally at this point it was it was traced patrilineally the focus was on the generations of fathers and so they didn't have any concern in giving us Mary's genealogy because what mattered to connect him to David was the father's genealogy. Um, so that's what we're given. And he's, he's sort of grafted into the genealogy because Joseph goes, continues on with the home taking following the betrothal period, even though he knows the child isn't his. So that grafts Jesus into his line. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I bring up this alternative read not to sort of shock anyone, um, but to open up the text and say, hey, it's one possible way of reading the text um, that might be theologically compelling. And then he continues on. Do you want to jump in? It occurs to me that maybe the people who wrote these, wrote it down, were the underdogs, the weaker ones. The right. strong ones were out raping and pillaging. Right. And then didn't have time to write stuff down. Right. So it was the disenfranchised, the younger siblings. The meek. The, the meek. meek. Who tell the story. Who tell the, get to tell the story. Right, right, well, exactly. And we'll see when we get to, uh, she was saying you it, was, repeat that, the, it was, maybe it's the disenfranchised and the downcast and downtrodden who are telling the story um, while the powerful were out <laughs> raping and pillaging, she said. Um, so, and that's, that is important as we look at the context of these birth narratives, that the context in both Matthew and Luke is empire, is imperial occupation and oppression. So as we keep digging into this, we'll see that that is the backdrop. Um, so the text continues on. Mary says, how can this be um, since I am a virgin? And importantly, the text actually never, Gabriel doesn't answer. And... Zechariah asks the same question, and he doesn't give a direct answer. He just says, the Holy Spirit, um, the power of the Most High, will overshadow you. And overshadow, biblically, that word is used in context of protection. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, he says to Mary, and the child um, will be holy. The child born will be holy. So again, in Schauberg's argument, you can read that as, as a promise of a virginal conception, or you can read it as something's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit will overshadow and protect you, and the child will nevertheless be holy. So she argues the text, again, is somewhat intentionally vague around, um, around this point. Um, and then she's told, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the six-month for her who was said to be barren. Uh, and then Mary says, Here I am, uh, Hineni, here I am, the servant of the Lord, or the slave of God. Let it be with me according to your word. And the angel departed. Um, so, interestingly here, Mary also sort of receives, she's almost framed in biblical terms as a prophet. Yes. You know, the angel appears. That's why I thought of Miriam. Uh, who has a direct line to God. Yeah. Um, in those days, Mary set out with haste and went to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of uh, Zechariah and Elisheva, Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb. I like this part. This is very sweet. And this is, um, uh, I've heard it joked that this is one of the few passages in scripture that passes the Bechdel test, or almost. If you know the Bechdel test, it's yes. a, a fe in feminist reading of literature. Is there a scene, and in movies, are there scenes that are centered around women in which they're talking about women's things and it's not all still in reference to men? And this is one of the texts that's still about their boys, but it's, it's, it's a scene that centers on the experience of two women. Um, and so this has become a, a, a beloved passage in um, Christian scripture where these two women, pregnant women, greet each other. One an old woman, one a young woman, both pregnant, they greet each other. Um, and the child leaps in her womb. Um, and then we're told Mary said or sang, and we're given a text that has become central to Christian liturgical prayer called the Magnificat. This is sung in Christian daily prayer every evening. This is in our evening prayer, you say the song of Mary. Um, and in the next chapter, Zechariah will sing a song, and that's said every day in the morning prayers uh, in the Christian tradition. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for God has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Significantly, the word lowliness there, it can literally be translated humiliation. Um, she's in a humiliated state, uh, a woman pregnant in her betrothal period, um, but God has never nevertheless looked on her humiliation and lifted her up. Uh, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. God has shown strength with God's arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away empty. God has helped God's servant Israel in remembrance of divine mercy according to the promises made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Um, so this, this is a powerful song that's a vision of the world being turned upside down, right? Here they are living under Roman occupation and oppression, and she's envisioning the mighty pulled down from their thrones, the hungry fed, the rich sent away empty, um, the proud scattered, uh, and this song actually models very closely the song of Hannah um, in the story of Samuel. Right. The song of what? This Hannah. We, it's the Haftarah for Rosh Hashanah. When Hannah cannot bear a child, she's, it's, dis, it's her disgrace. And her husband Elkanah says, oh, but I love you more than ten sons. Isn't that enough? It's a very poignant passage in the beginning of the book of Samuel. And Hannah's inconsolable. And when um, uh, she does, with God's help, finally conceive um, uh, a boy who will be named Samuel, God, which means God hears, um, uh, she sings a famous prayer. And it starts, my heart exults in the Lord. So this is very reminiscent of Hannah's prayer in the book of Samuel. So we're told Hannah saying, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. Um, and she goes on and again uh, envisions 
the world turned upside down. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Um, so that's the book of Samuel. That's the book of Samuel. And this so is Mary's Magnificat. Mary's Magnificat is in the lineage of these women who, who conceive in these strange ways and envision the world turned upside down. Does the song of Miriam also serve as a backdrop? Oh, Not so song. much. The song of Miriam is just two lines. Um, uh, uh, what does Miriam sing? Horse and rider. Yeah, horse and that's rider. Moses, it. That's Moses' song. It, it's, song a refra- it's a refrain the, from, it says, And Miriam took, led all the women out with timbrel and with dance and sang, Horse and rider, God is thrown into the sea. Uh, so, no, it's not uh, exactly related. because But song it's still about God overpowering the powerful right. and lifting up the lowly. So All of these songs are about women singing about God turning the world upside down. We can, uh, uh, we can talk for a very long time about both in Judaism and Christianity both coming from the same source. The source is that there is a power in the universe that will not suffer tyrants, that is on the side of humanity. You know, this is our God. This, this, this is our God. And you could say that one of the anomalies of Jewish history is that the weaker, the losers, the exiles, managed to preserve their story, right? Uh, and and uh, which is not a story of victory and conquest, but a story of being redeemed from oppression. It's so powerful to me. It's part of what motivates me as a Jew. The, the church has a more challenging situation because with that as a core narrative, the church ascended to imperial power. And so the, the sort of blatant contradictions of the church uh, uh, are a challenge, I would say, for... Right. For many Christians. Um, uh, today, with the, with the Jews returning to national sovereignty and having our own army for the first time in 2,000 years, there's a vigorous debate in Israel about uh, what about our legacy? You know, what do we do now that we have state power? So, again, the Jews, because of historical happenstance, didn't have to face this contradiction until now. But it's a vigorous debate in Israel about what do we do with power. And of course, because they're just human beings like the rest of us, you have, don't know who's going to win once you have power, right? You don't know who's going to prevail. But that's not, but I do want to point out to you, number one, that our hands as Jews aren't clean anymore because we have state power if we affiliate ourselves with Israel. And uh, that the contradictions and challenges of that, when you have a tradition that is fundamentally humanist, uh, that says every human being is created in the image of God, uh, these are the challenges we face. I'd say the church has faced it for a, a lot longer. And, uh, and not handled it very well. Not handled it this very is, well. You know, this is the curse of historic Christendom, that in the, the third, fourth centuries, Christianity... In the fourth century, Christianity merges with imperial power. So it had been an oppressed minority within an oppressed minority. You know, it starts out as a movement within Judaism, and so it's sort of doubly oppressed. 
and then it merges with the power of empire, and suddenly the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Um, and Jesus, who operates on the principles of mercy and lifting up the lowly and serving the outcasts and marginalized, we try to plug those movements into like the imperial power machine and it falls apart. Um, and so Christianity begins running on power and domination, which isn't what Jesus ran on. Um, and so we'll start seeing this as we keep going in the text, and it might be worth just pointing out too, this context of power um, that's behind both of these narratives. Last time we looked at the story of Herod slaughtering the innocents of Bethlehem, which was a mirroring, a retelling of the story of the slaughter of the Hebrew babies under Pharaoh. Um, the church every year, we recount that story, and um, this is the prayer that we pray every year on the day that is remembered. Um, and again, it's an archetypal story about holy innocents who are slaughtered at all times in all histories under regimes of, of, of power. We remember today, O oh God, the slaughter of the holy innocents of Bethlehem by King Herod. Receive, we pray, into the arms of your mercy all innocent victims, and by your great might frustrate the designs of evil tyrants and establish your rule of justice, love, and peace. Amen. Um, amen. Where, where do you find that? It, it's, it's in our prayer book. Um, and so that's the prayer offered every year on that day. And again, that story, it's not just um, when Matthew told it, he's not necessarily recounting an historical narrative. He's recounting an archetypal narrative of what tyrants do uh, to the innocent. And so that's, again, the backdrop in which Luke is unfolding his narrative. Because the next thing we get in your text, you see... In those days, the decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. Um, so we're given this framing, and... Uh, we'll start getting into the political implications behind the text, but I just want to note that this is where we really start seeing the divergence in the infancy narratives. And in Christian popular imagination, we just mush them together. In Matthew's infancy narrative, the story started in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem. We're told they're in their home in Bethlehem, and the, the Magi come to visit. And then, if you remember, we were told Herod, fearful of the prophecy that one would overthrow him, um, slaughters the innocents, and Mary and Jesus and Joseph flee as refugees into Egypt, um, which again is a powerful narrative that our text is on the side of the refugee, um, on the side of the, the people who are fleeing oppression. Um, and then we're told they waited until Herod died. They hear that Archelaus is now king, and so they don't want to go back to Bethlehem because it's still unsafe. So the text says, so they moved to Nazareth and settled there. So this is the first time in the story that they wound up in Nazareth. So that narrative goes, Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth. Luke tells a very different story. And we looked at part of this symbolically, the birth needs to happen in Bethlehem to connect Jesus with David. Right, that's David's hometown. 
So both of them, in these parable overtures, they get Jesus to Bethlehem in different ways. Um, the other one, they start out there in a home there. Here, they start out in Nazareth, which is how Jesus was remembered, Jesus of Nazareth. And historically, we think he, that's probably where he was literally born. But we need to get him to Bethlehem, so there's a registration. And so they make a journey. And this is in our popular imagination, Mary and Joseph on the donkey making their way to Bethlehem. And there's no room in the inn, and the baby is born. And then as this narrative continues... In a manger. In a manger, in a manger. And, um, and then there's no flight into Egypt, there's no slaughter of the holy innocents, there's no evil King Herod, and they just make their way back home to Nazareth. It's a very different telling. Um, and, and in that story, it's about the Magi. In this story, there are no wise men. In this story, there are shepherds. And so um, it's important to remember shepherds were, again, at the bottom of the class totem pole. So this is, again, Luke showing us the gospel's concern for the people at the bottom. Who, who, do, who do the messengers come to? Not to the people in power, but to the shepherds out in their fields. In that region, the text picks up, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, Do not not be afraid. (laughs) I am bringing you, now this is very significant, bringing you good news. There's that word that we saw before, of great joy to all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth, or in the old King James, in swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom God favors. Um, So, I want to point out that Caesar, in imperial edicts, was referred to as Lord, as Son of God, as Savior, and as bringer of peace. These were all imperial titles given to the divine Augustus. Um, And... The Pax Romana, right? And so the context of this story is the empire of God versus up against the empire of Rome. And what, what kind of power do we model our lives on? The empire of Rome and the divine Augustus, who is Lord and Savior and bringer of peace, <laughs> brings peace through power and domination. Mm-hmm. In the empire or the kingdom of God... The model that Jesus embodies, peace is brought in a very different way. This is the peace of, of the one who suffers, who serves, who is humble, who is lowly. Um, and so I want to read just really quickly, now that we've heard this proclamation of Jesus' birth in this text, a proclamation from the same time period. This is um, written in the year 9 BCE, so just shortly after Jesus would have been born. Um, And it's an inscription about the emperor. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. Now, we're going to come to Jesus in the beginning was the word in John's gospel. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, 
all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year, whereas providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection and giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war, and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. So, so what is the gospel author doing in writing this text? The gospel author is writing an imperially subversive text. They're saying, uh-uh. Power isn't Caesar, power is the baby, you know, in the manger. Power is, is Jesus. Power, good news isn't the good news of, you know, Pax Romana through domination. Good news is this new movement um, of inclusion and justice and peace. So, it's so Jewish. <laughs> That's my comment. <laughs> for instance, um, and thank you for that, um, in the prophet Micah, uh, let's see, I have the right source here. Uh, Micah 4, 3, a trope that's repeated two other times in Isaiah and in Joel. Um, uh, let us go up, come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For teaching shall come forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Thus he will judge among the many peoples and arbitrate for the multitude of nations, however distant, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not take up sword against nation. They shall never again know war, but every man shall sit under his grapevine or fig tree with no one to disturb him. So, you know, it's good stuff. <laughs> um, so again, these narratives, both infancy narratives, are juxtaposing. They're both telling us this happens in the context of empire, and they're juxtaposing the kingdom of Caesar and Rome against this newly being born kingdom of God. Um, and I want to read a couple verses to give us some context again for this scene, this manger scene that we're all familiar with from Christmas cards. Why does Luke frame it as an infant in swaddling clothes in a manger? So last time we looked back and we saw how the Magi were drawn from verses in the Psalms, um, the kings from Arabia who will bring gifts of gold uh, and, and frankincense. So Luke is working with some different scriptural traditions. And in the Christian uh, Hebrew Bible, we have some extra books, uh, intertestamental books. One of those is the Book of the Wisdom of Solomon. And in that text, uh, in the seventh chapter, the voice of Solomon says, I was nursed with care and swaddling clothes, for no king had a different beginning of existence. And so when we have Jesus placed in swaddling clothes, um, and then in Isaiah, we're told, Isaiah, at the beginning of Isaiah, verse 3, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So is Luke intentionally putting the baby in a manger with the, you know, where the donkey recognizes him. He's taking motifs from the prophets to weave the scene. Um, so the text goes on, and we want to shift, I think, probably now to John, but 
Uh, we're told, I yeah. Richard you just mentioned the part about the manger being oh, a meeting place. And yeah. Communion. Repeat what you said. Yeah. Would you, you know, the fact that he was a manger is kind of forecasting. So yeah, if, if, if we look food. at, if we look at the Isaiah passage, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, and then we have him placed in a manger in a stable, is that sort of, is he playing with that motif? Um, was what I was saying, but you're saying there's a food motif. Yeah, so I mean, we go on to believe that we're eating the Jesus. body and blood of Christ. Right, that He is food for the, the world. So I think that's forecasting that He is food. Well, that, and that's lovely because then He's not just food for human beings, but for all creatures, <laughs> which is yeah, a lovely way of unpacking that. Uh, Lenore, you had something you wanted to share. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, it actually had been way before when you had read the passage about Augustus. It just what struck me, which was so clear about that, is to be emperor, to be imperator, meant that you held the imperium. Mm -hmm. The imperium was the right to go to war. See, he could do it without this, the, the uh, consent of the senatus. He alone now assumed absolute power to go to war, oh. which was the power and the strength of Rome. And he could rule not in... Um, in, in um, he could rule ex principia in Latin, which meant that he could rule above the law. Wow. So, do you want so that, that is, just makes that so it's just exactly Could you all hear Lenore? Yeah. Did that work? Uh, can, can, I, 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 okay, so the imperium meant that you had the right to declare war. That's what the emperor could do. Furthermore, you were considered to be above the law. That's what he did. That's how he transformed himself, which is what Matthew read. Right. That was that whole point, because it went from Julius, remember, that without getting into the triumvirate, and he does this extraordinary thing, in, which makes him a god. Which makes Augustus a god. Mm -hmm. Thank you. But again, just to mirror these images, how, how the contrast of Caesar, who is God manifest, who brings peace, who is the savior, and then Jesus, who his disciples will use the same language, God manifest, the savior who brings peace. But he is martyred by Rome on a cross. Like it's just the flip image. It's like if you took this image and inverted it, it's like the photo negative. And it's, you know, which is the model that you want to follow? Which is the empire you want to serve? Right. The king of kings is who we want to serve, and the word Pax Romana is different from the Hebrew word Shalom. Shalom, well, Shalom in Hebrew means well-being, completeness, fullness, wholeness. That's what Shalom means. And uh, Pax Romana is referring to a different kind of absence of conflict uh, that's maintained through force. Uh, uh, do you want to add something to that, Norm? Uprising. The uprising of the Jews. And Bodiaca in England. There's another one going on in, in England, huh? Remember when she rises up, she's a Celtic, she is the ruler and great warrior of the Celts, and she rises up in revolt against Rome. Remember what they do to her according to the stories, um, in which basically they torture her children and and ultimately, I forget, it's really awful. Yeah. But they go viciously, historically. So, they document this after two groups. 
at the ends of the Roman Empire in in uh, in, in uh, the British Isles and in in the Middle East in Judea, uh, re rebellions are crushed mercilessly by the Imperium. Yes. Mm. <laughs> so, um, let's just round out Luke's text and turn to John's uh, for the rest of our time together. Um, we're told then that these shepherds, they make haste, they find Mary and Joseph and the child in the manger, and they tell them all that has been made known to them about the child, and this lovely line, Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Um, now, I just want to note that the church still celebrates every January 1st the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus, or what we call the feast now more often, the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus, um, because of our squeamishness around circumcision. Uh, but well, that's also the naming day. Yes, it's the naming yes, day, yes, but. yeah. So on the eighth day, and, and as, as most of you know, the eighth day is traditionally when a male child is circumcised and named. And so we're told here that Jesus on the eighth day was circumcised and named. Um, and so this still is observed within the Christian calendar every year. Um, January 1st is the day we remember the naming and circumcision of Jesus. Um, it's usually celebrated with um, Eucharist and a sermon. And, um, and in my mind, it's, it's of all the feast days connected to Jesus, it's the one that most celebrates his Jewish particularity. Um, so then we're told the next passage, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So this is the redemption of the firstborn. And they offer... Do you know about that Jewish ritual? It's called Pidyon Haben. It comes from the Bible, and there are still, um, it still remains in Jewish life today. You bring your firstborn to, in ancient times, to the temple, because all firstborn belong to God. That's the idea. And you then uh, give the priest five shekels and redeem your son. You sort of buy back the child. You buy back your child. The child does not belong to you. The child, the first fruit of your womb belongs to the creator. And, um, but, and so that's why the first fruit of animals are offered to God as sacrifices. And then you, also the first fruits are pruned and offered to God. Um, but the firstborn child is not. Only the first male? Only male. That's the, that's, this is the biblical tradition, is redeemed. Uh, today, if you follow this practice and you have a firstborn son and you're a traditional Jew, you find someone who is of the Kohen lineage, someone named Kohen, who's a priestly lineage, and you do a ceremony where you give them now it's traditionally five silver dollars, and, you, and it's a ceremony on the 30th day. So it still exists. It's called Redemption of the Firstborn, Pidyon Habet. But the thing to note in this, and it's also the, the time when a woman is purified. It's the purification of the mother after childbirth. So she goes through ritual purification, and the firstborn child is redeemed. And we're told, and they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, it's significant that Luke specifies a pair of turtle doves, because this is the offering that poor families can make if they can't afford right. 
a lamb or a goat. I, I, is uh, it, a goat you, or a lamb. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Luke is reminding us that his parents are from among the poor, the poorest. Um, this is the again this gospel con- constantly um, shows a preferential option for the poor. Um, more than any of the other gospels, uh, Luke always lifts the poor up. And we see even uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in mm-hmm. Matthew's version, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's version, it says, Blessed are you poor. Woe to you rich. So Matthew has spiritualized away the poverty, the poor in spirit. Um, Luke says, Blessed are you who, who are hungry, who hunger. Matthew says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So again, he's spiritualizing it. This is very characteristic of Luke's gospel, that he's talking about real hunger and real poverty. Let me add briefly that, uh, so again, you're a Jewish listener in the first century. You're expecting the circumcision. You're expecting the pidyon haben, the redemption of the firstborn. Uh, And then um, uh, later when when we get to, in verse 23, when it says Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. 30. Look in Numbers chapter 4. Take a census of the Levites by their clan. From the age of 30, they are subject to perform tasks in the tent of meeting. So 30 is also the biblical age when you would begin to minister if, if you were in the temple. Uh, so again, we think of Jesus' ministry beginning at 30. There's a biblical echo of that that would make sense. So we're showing essentially that all things are fulfilled to make him a good Jewish boy here. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, we're being reminded that he came from the poor. Yeah. Um, at what age are you allowed to study Kabbalah? Is it 30 or? Well, 40? it's 40, but that's a 40. much, much later yeah, tradition. But I just didn't but, know. Right, no, it doesn't happen. I don't know why they said 40 and not 30. (laughs) So there are more, this is a longer narrative than we're looking at here, and we'll turn gears, but there are these other lovely stories. As he's in the temple, we're told that this aged man, Simeon, recognizes the holiness of the child, and he sings a song about him, and that song has become part of um, Christian night prayer, the prayers before bed. And then we're told that a prophet named Anna, this old woman who um, is a widow in her 80s who lives in the temple, she also recognizes the holiness of the child. And so we're given a little prefiguring that he's special. Um, and who would Hannah be, who is Anna, Hannah, who's 84 years old, who lives at the temple? She would again be a, a remembrance echo. of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, because Samuel was raised in the temple. And 84 is very old. It's, it's 12 times 7. Right, the Psalms say what? You know, we're given 70 years, perhaps 80 if we're strong. And, and it's another 7. Uh, so Hannah is also there in the background validating this remarkable baby. But, I wanna, but, I, but yes, I don't want to lose the fact that he's from the poor, he's from the, uh, he's from the disenfranchised, he's from that, they can only afford the turtle doves. All of that's very important to the story. And then finally, when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And again, just to note, this is different from Matthew, where they resettle in Nazareth, having had to leave Bethlehem and flee into Egypt. So here they return to Nazareth. Uh, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Um, And then... 
uh, Luke jumps into Mark's gospel, and we get the story of the oh, baptism. Oh, but then but before that, there's a lineage. So it's after that. So Luke, what Luke does, and you don't have this in your text there, but we'll just um, recount it. So Luke then, after Jesus uh, grows oh, right, up, right, you're right. I'm sorry. We're actually given a scene of him. Then he gives us the scene of Jesus at 12 years old. Uh, among the elders in the temple, sort of showing his wisdom, that he can hold his own with the wise at the temple. Uh, and then we jump to his baptism. And at the end of the baptism of Jesus, uh, Luke then inserts his genealogy of Jesus. Mark, Matthew gave it to us at the beginning. Luke gives it to us at the end of his overture. And the interesting thing about... And you have that. It's on this page. Is the genealogy there? You oh, we it. did. It is there. So it is in your packet. I just didn't turn my page. So if you turn your page, you'll see Luke's version of the genealogy, which is different. In, in Matthew's version, we were given, we looked at the importance of sevens. We were given three series of 14s, 14 generations, which is a multiple of seven, 14, 14, 14, adding up to 42 generations. Here we're given, is it 77, 77 generations? So again, seven is important. But what Matthew does that's so fascinating, we, we saw that, Matt, I'm sorry, Luke, Matthew's real concern was to trace Jesus to David, to give him messianic credentials, and to trace him to Abraham, to say, you know, he's of this line. And we saw Matthew's concern really for a Jewish audience. Luke's gospel, uh, in a lot of ways, seems to be opening up to an increasingly Gentile audience. He doesn't trace the lineage to Abraham, he traces it all the way back to, you see at the very end, son of Adam, son of God. And so he's saying Jesus belongs to the whole of humanity. He's giving us the lineage very, all the way back to the, the beginning. And then you get this sort of bookend echo with the son of God language. Because we've just heard the story of Jesus at his baptism, where the spirit declares him son of God. Um, and we saw how that language was also used of David um, at his coronation. And here the language is used of Adam. So, how just a mirroring. How did he trace him back to Adam? He made it up. He made up the lineage. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Seth. Yeah, Seth is in there. Cain and Abel. It's interesting, he goes through Seth rather than Cain and Abel. Well, yeah. it's because Cain is, Abel's dead. Right. Cain, we all descend from Seth. We all descend. Cain, Cain is banished. Right. And then they have another child named Seth. Mm -hmm. And we are all descended from Seth. And how did Hannah recognize him as an infant? Well, these are these are these are stories of you know these are stories of like well this was a holy child of course the holy wise people recognize them you know it's 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 um it's a legend. Well, I realize that I'm just wondering what the explanation of the legend was. Well, she's a prophet. She has the sight, so to speak. She um, sees. She recognizes. This is the child. You know, okay. it's that kind of. Um, just like, just like um, David, when um, Samuel, and when uh uh how how yes, it, we don't have to explain it anymore. It's like he sees David is the one. one. He just they, knows. He's she's filled with the spirit of God. Yeah. She sees the. She sees it. Okay. She sees it. Right. Um, so this is Luke's account. Um, this is Luke's account. We've looked at these two overtures to the gospel, uh, which are just packed with symbolic meaning and scriptural resonance. And um, do you want to say anything before we shift to Joan? Yeah. Joan. Just going back to uh, 
of verse 56. And I don't know if this has any meaning or not. And Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her home. Well, if she was already six months pregnant, is there any uh, significance that she was there at the birth or she wasn't there? Oh, maybe Mary was at the birth of, uh, John. of John. Yeah, I guess no, that could I be I think implied. that's significant because the significance here that Luke does, that Mark and Matthew haven't even, is that the link between John the Baptist and Jesus is so important in all the Gospels, and, and we talked a lot about this in a previous class. But also the inferiority of John to Jesus. And the fact that John has to be the, the harbinger, right. the announcer of Jesus. That uh, Matthew, and in Mark and Matthew, they only meet uh, as, adults. as adults. And they never tell us that they were related or they had met before. Related? Their, their parents were cousins? Luke just really ups the ante and shows that this was preordained from the womb by God. That and that John in the womb jumped and recognized John Jesus in the, in the womb. John in the womb sees that Jesus, right? So that's the, that's the sort of what I mean about the legend grows, right? You want to keep retrojecting back to show how things came to be. So, uh, and so they're just... that. So Luke's is much more involved than even Matthew's is. But now I think I'm ready to turn to John if you want you know, to say something. I'll say one more thing. It's worth, <laughs> it's worth recognizing, um, and I'm speaking as a Christian, uh, when we read our own texts, it seems like we're, it's easier within a tradition to recognize the mythical or the legendary in another tradition than in your own. Yeah. You know? It's like, well, ours is literal, but we hear the story in another tradition. Well, obviously, that's a legend, you know? And so it makes me think of the stories of um, the birth of the Buddha. So it's worth just, you know, telling one of those stories to remind ourselves that we tell great stories about great beings. Um, the story about the birth of the Buddha is that his mother, Queen Maya Devi, she went to sleep and she dreamed that night that a white elephant descended from heaven and entered her womb. Wow. <laughs> and then she woke up and she had conceived wow. the Buddha. Um, when the white elephant descends in the dream. And, and white elephants are, are a very symbolically powerful in Buddhism and, and Hinduism. Right, right. Later, when she gave birth to the child, instead of experiencing the pain of childbirth, the queen experienced a special pure vision in which she stood holding the branch of a tree with her right hand while the gods Brahma and Indra took the child painlessly from her side. Wow. Yeah. When the king saw the child, he felt as if all his wishes had been fulfilled and named the young prince Siddhartha. He invited a Brahmin seer, now here's our wise men coming to the birth, mm -hmm. to make predictions about the prince's future. The seer examined the child with his clairvoyance and told the king, there are signs that the boy could become either a great king, a ruler of the entire world, or a fully enlightened being. Um, and so this is like Simeon and Anna in the temple. They see it and they prophesy that he will be a great one. Like this is this is such an archetypal story um, that's told. And um, and of course the king wants to keep him, wants him to become a great king. So he raises yes, him in the palace with luxury. But then he he encounters suffering in the world and becomes a great enlightenment. But, oh hold, hold yeah. on, I just have to. I will recognize you. I'm so grateful you brought that. Um, because the, will he become a great king or a fully enlightened being? The stories of Moses mm -hmm. in our tradition. Right, well, he succeeds Pharaoh he's as a being ruler. He's raised as a prince of Egypt. Or will he become 
The liberator of his people. The liberator. Remember that word liberator, spiritual enlightenment, is liberation. And to see the exact same template is really magnificent. But my point being, as a Christian, I can read that story and go, that's clearly a legend, right? Like, it didn't literally happen. A white elephant. But then I read read my own text and I go, but it literally had to be just like this. That is not a metaphor, you know. Um, But to, to be able to read our texts with the freedom with which we would read others is really important. Wow, that's beautiful. And it doesn't have to weaken our faith. At all. uh, Because we're dealing with not facts, but our soul's journey. And that's a different way of reading and perceiving. Uh, Deborah and then Gary. So this goes directly toward that. So people who read all of this literally, how do they reconcile those contradictions? They just live with a lot of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Unexamined cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> look at all, look, you can look at that anywhere in anywhere, society yeah, anywhere. and say, why do they believe that? Yeah. Because belonging is more important than, ration, than cons- consistency. Uh, and we will, sub- we will sacrifice our coherent uh, 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 narratives for a sense of belonging. But it's also, human. as human beings, we want to live in a world that we know is coherent and meaningful. And in our postmodern world, often we've lost a sense of coherence and meaning, a story that holds it all together. So what do we want to do? We want to retreat back to the last story that made sense of the world for us. And this story tells me what, what is meaningful and what I should believe. And so it comes at the cost of, you know, like shutting everything else out, but at least it gives you a sense of coherence. So what we need to be able to do is tell a new story, a bigger story that can give us a sense of coherence um, so that it's not this either or, you know, either I embrace it or I reject it, but that there's a third way. And that's really what we've been exploring. <laughs> Gary? I'm lost in the weeds, okay, between the two stories. So something tells me that if I was to understand the fundamental mystery, it would come to me either by a process of, of subtraction or addition. Either I would subtract the differences between these two stories and all of them and boil and ferment in that which is common, or I would uh, subtract away the common and let the, let the distinctions and the differences agitate me. And to, at some point, the lesson would come there. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just suggesting that in trying to get the literal and care about this, I'm lost. Yeah. The mystery has gone from me. I'm yeah. trying to get my way back there. And I'm saying, what do these guys have that is on, in this conflict? Where is the resolution? Huh. Well, we intentionally, we, I know, and, and I don't think we can get there today. But we, we, no, seriously, we intentionally wanted to unpack the texts first so you could see that they were not consistent. But that doesn't mean that they're not packed with meaning. And that's our point today. Uh, And uh, if your faith is challenged by a close reading of these texts and seeing how different they are, then that's good. It's good to have your faith shaken in that way because... There's a different level of faith that, that we were after here that's not about uh, 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 making sure the essay reads exactly the same. Um, Karen? Uh, just for the sake of putting all the legends on the table, for those following the women in the story, 
Thank um, you, Karen. It's appreciated. It's good and clear so we get it on the recording, too. Uh, there's Anna, who's of the tribe of Asher. Yes. Oh, this we forgot Anna. to talk about well, that. No, we did. Who's, who's in the temple. We just didn't read her whole story because we didn't think we had time to do it. Say more. But All yes, right. Anna or Hannah, who is this elderly woman in the temple who recognizes the Holy Child. So you talked about Hannah, but the reference also is for uh, Sarah? Sarah. Who is uh, the daughter of Asher, of the, and she, in the legends, is responsible for the bones of Joseph. Oh. Of remembering the memory of the Jews, the Jews who've lost all memory of their tradition because they were slaves. There is this ancient woman who somehow mm -hmm. Is 400 years old. She has survived years old. the yeah. slavery to remember that the promise was that the bones of Joseph should be returned to the Holy Land. And she was wow. Hannah or Anna of the tribe of Asher? Did she's, you say? Sarah. she's Sarah. This is Sarah. Sarah. But oh. wait, so this woman can be in her lineage because we're told there was also a prophet, Anna or Hannah, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age. Um, uh, and, and she never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. So, so I, so, yeah, yeah. Karen, let me expand on that. We talked about this, but we were just like trying to edit a little, um, uh, but it's really worth talking about. So in the lineage of the 70 children of Jacob who went down to Egypt in the book of, of uh, in, in the Torah, there is one woman mentioned. Serach, the daughter of Asher. Okay, whenever it's anomalous like that, it just demands your attention. Mm -hmm. And so a whole, why is Serach, the daughter of Asher, mentioned? So a whole, there's no explanation. Mm -hmm. So a whole body of lore develops. Midrashim. Midrashim about Serach, that she's named because she's important. And she's important because she carries the memory uh, she's the only one when they're redeemed from slavery who remembers when they went into slavery and reminds them that God will redeem them because that was promised and she remembers and she's very old it's a very poignant midrash she remembers the sound of pakad which means God will take note and they remember she's also assigned the one who tells Jacob that Joseph is still alive uh, and sings a song to him. So Sarah is this figure in Midrash, so it would be no accident, in fact, quite intentional, that uh, Anna, Hannah in the temple, would be identified with the tribe of Asher and another woman who was responsible for Joseph's bones, yes. And for the whole memory of liberation. It's a beautiful, beautiful set of legends. The, the, the text says that when Mary and Joseph walk into the temple, it says, at that moment she came, Anna of the tribe of Asher, and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Um, so yes, so she sort of shows up right then. Um, yeah, so that's beautiful. And as Jonathan and I have been saying, these, these infancy narratives, they're best read as midrashim. These are, this is a midrashic telling of the birth of Jesus, that's drawing all these legends together in a new creative synthesis. Um, and then John... He comes along around the year 90 or 100 and writes a new gospel. And he opens the story up in this like wild and powerful and sort of metaphysical uh, new way. And his approach is incredibly different. He, 
He doesn't. His, his, he doesn't give us an infancy narrative. He doesn't tell us stories of the child Jesus. Nothing. Or the birth of Jesus. Instead, he says, in the beginning. And so we're linking right to Genesis, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So, in Genesis, God speaks, let there be light, and there is light. So we're dealing with these primordial images of of the light and the darkness, the word which is in the beginning, and God creates through the word, right? God speaks things into being. The word is the creative power and agency of God, um, and all things come into being through it. Um, what John has done here, though, the word that this text is translating as word, it's the Greek word logos, um, L-O-G-O-S, logos, and he's borrowing uh, a, a Greek philosophical term, logos. This was in Greek philosophy um, to refer to the divine animating principle within, within all life. Um, it's sort of, for the unmoved mover god of the Greeks, how does that god interface with the world? The logos is the sort of mediating you know, power between the unmoved mover and creation. And, and it's the principle that is animating and patterning all of life. So John, because he's writing in Greek, he takes this word logos to speak about this principle. But this exists in Judaism and Hebrew scripture under the name chokmah, or wisdom. Um, and, and scholars think that John is appropriating the closest Greek philosophical equivalent to this Jewish idea of wisdom. And so I want to just read yeah, something about that. So in later, not in earlier biblical sources, we don't hear about wisdom. But in latter books of the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, mm -hmm. we hear, and also Job, we hear all about wisdom as a personified uh, character who is God's consort, as it were. Always personified as a woman. Always a woman. Chokhmah is a female word. Sophia. And it's, it's completely plausible, even probable, that this was a product of Hellenization among the Jews. That the Jews became immersed in the, the worldview and philosophy of the time, which was Greek, and adapted this idea of Logos also into Judaism as a feminine archetype who dwells with God from before the beginning. So I want to read the Proverbs section. Well, first let me read. So this is Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, writing around this time. He says, although the logos, this principle, is common, that is universal, uh, most people live as if they had their own private understanding. Listening not to me, but to the logos, it is wise to agree that all things are one. The Logos is that which unites all things as one. So now, keep that in those two verses, um, these passages in mind, and I'm going to read uh, to you from the book of Proverbs. Question. Is Logos related 
related to logic? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's where we get words like logic in English. Okay. Yes, it is that um, knowledge. Psycho rational psychology. Yes, but it is it is um, yes the logic that is ordering creation in a way. You know that's word, yeah. yeah the word. So Proverbs. We read chapter 8, beginning at verse 22, and this is wisdom. She's speaking in her own voice. The Lord possessed me at the beginning. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, before the earth began. When God established the heavens, I was there. When God drew a circle on the face of the deep and marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was with God like a master architect. Rejoicing in the inhabited world and delighting in the human race. So she is there in the beginning, and God is making things through her. She is like the master architect or craftsman, the word can be translated. Or also, the, um, it, it, you know, in Jewish mysticism, the masculine aspect of God inseminates the feminine, which then can give birth to the world also. So it's that, it's both architect, but also uh, create, creative force. And I will add that in the Jewish tradition, chokhmah, wisdom, the feminine archetype, becomes identical, synonymous with Torah, which is a feminine word. So God, Torah is called the blueprint of creation. Not the physical Torah, but the supernal Torah. The eternal Torah. Yeah. The, the Torah that is the template out of the out of which this world is going to spring is called Torah as well. And I want to say that, you know, many scholars and, and good thinkers, people whose thinking I, I like to follow, articulate like this. Having a solo male deity, masculine deity, just doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and that willy-nilly, the feminine is going to emerge and so it happens in, in Jewish uh, uh, cosmology also, that there's this feminine archetype known as wisdom or Torah who dwells with God from before eternity. Uh, and uh, if you have problems with monotheism, I'm sorry. Um, if you have problems with monotheism, I apologize. But, uh, uh, you know... Who, who said the mono was going to be masculine? It's like it doesn't make sense. So. so wisdom, she continues emerging. As Jonathan said, she's showing up late in um, Hebrew scripture and being developed. In the intertestamental period, the period between the closing of, of the Hebrew canon and the writing of the Christian canon, you get this explosion of books, a number of which make it into the Christian canon of the Hebrew Bible, but not the Jewish canon of the Hebrew Bible. And, um, right, they didn't make the cut, but they were still read right, right. and appreciated. And so one of those is the Wisdom of Solomon, or the Book of Wisdom. Another is the Wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach, or what's called uh, often Ecclesiasticus. And those texts really unpack um, wisdom. So I want to read just a few verses. This is from Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. She arises in God and is with God forever. Established before beginnings, she transcends time. She is God's word, a fountain of understanding. Her ways are timeless, linking each to all and all to one. So 
What what does that sound like except the feminine counterpart of what we're reading in John's Gospel and what we're hearing from Greek philosophy as well about um, the Lagos? Uh, here again, this is from the Wisdom of Solomon. Although she is one, she does all things. Without leaving herself, she renews all things. Generation after generation, she slips into holy souls, making them friends of God and prophets. For God loves none more than they who dwell with wisdom. Uh, so this is the backdrop. These texts are exploding at the time the New Testament is being written. And John is taking this Hebrew concept and he's needing to translate it into Greek. So logos is the closest equivalent to hokmah. Um, so some Christian scholars say we could reread this opening as in the beginning was wisdom. And wisdom was with God. And wisdom was God. She was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through her. And without her, not one thing came into being. And then we continue down in the text. And I'll just jump ahead a bit. So all he did was read the John text, putting... Putting Kochman in. in the feminine. Same text. Yeah. She was in the world. The world came into being through her, yet the world did not know her. She came to what was her own, and her own people did not accept her. And then we jumped down, and wisdom became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen her glory, the glory as of a father's only child, full of grace and truth. Um, so we see... The, what the Christian text here is doing, it's framing Jesus as the incarnation, the embodiment, the enfleshment of this divine blueprint, this pattern, this, this one through whom all things are made. Um, the blueprint, the template, becomes flesh in a human life. Um, this isn't so foreign, because we read, again, in the Wisdom of Solomon, generation after generation, she slips into holy souls, making them friends of God and prophets. Um, but this is a wildly different telling of the Christmas story. So the whole nativity, <laughs> the whole nativity story. This is John's telling of the nativity, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. That's it. That is what Luke and Matthew took two chapters to do with all these stories. Story. Luke does in four words: the Word became flesh. John. That's. John, I'm sorry. John does in four words. That's his and Christmas this is the story. Same John who left in the woods. No, 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 no. no sorry, this isn't John the Baptist. Yeah. yeah. Now, there are a number of hands. Can you repeat what? Ah, did John feel free to write it like this because he assumed people knew the other birth narrative stories? Perhaps, yeah. It could have been that you know other communities had copies of these, but, but John is making a point. Yeah, He's, I, I want to say I want to say something. We care. I don't think people in that time had any problem with multiple narratives. So I don't think he was waiting for permission to tell his narratives because people thought the consistency that we crave is not here. Okay, that our rational minds crave. This is another way of talking about it, and I don't think it matters whether he was aware of the other stories or not. Um, but but, but we see was. we've made a leap now from Mark's gospel starting with the baptism to these stories that start with the, um, the birth to here we're in pre-eternity, we're in the timeless, and John is saying that's where the story really begins. 
Um, let's jump all over the place here, <laughs> right here beside Hattie. Okay. Hi, thank you for uh, my question. Um, a question I have about all these texts is why should it have been believed? The reason why some of these other stories is because they spoke to a lot of Jewish traditions and it made sense, it, it linked Jesus to this older culture and affirmed prophecy. Well, right. how does that work for John's narrative? And I think the idea is John is speaking to this wider, wider Hellenized world. Greeks, and in the Greek <coughs> tradition, all their philosophers were looking at, okay, how did the world come into being? And they had these four major elements that they all talked about, but which came first? And John is saying in like a New York Post side headline, in the beginning was the word. And for them, they are like, aha, from that point, then they can do a lot with their already existing systems, and from my perspective, reading a lot of Greek history, and then imagining what it would have been like for them to read this, mm -hmm. why did they choose to believe it, and why was this yeah. new faith suddenly accepted? I think it's because of this Yeah, this is absolutely an interfacing. So um, why? We see why Matthew or Luke or Mark are telling their stories in the way they tell them. They're saying, see, you know, Matthew's saying, see, look, he is the fulfillment, he is the culmination of Jewish prophecy and longing. And that's kind of the direction he's going in. He's showing how that's the case. Why does John take this big metaphysical philosophical leap? Well, the tradition is moving out more and more into Greco-Roman world, um, into the world of Greek philosophy, and they're wanting to show how he's also the fulfillment and the culmination of, of that. Like, for those of a, a, a philosophical bent who are in, immersed in Greek philosophy to say that, actually, this, this principle in Greek philosophy, the logos, you know, through which the unmoved mover makes the worlds, um, that has become flesh in Jesus. So, so Jesus now becomes not just the fulfillment of Jewish longing, he becomes the fulfillment <laughs> of Greek philosophy. Um, That's the point, is that the assumption, therefore, is John's audience, written now between, say, 90 and 110, is a more Greek audience, uh, that Christianity is now separating itself from Judaism, which will explain some of the most anti-Jewish passages in John. In John. Uh, because and John becomes the most blatantly, um, yes, anti-Jewish, you could say. It's, it's, it, it's very easy to read John in anti-Semitic ways. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Angela. Is this because the center fell apart when, when Jerusalem was, was conquered? Is, is that, I mean, this is now 20 years after. Longer. Right, yeah, okay. 20 to 30 years after the temple has been destroyed. So there's no, there's no Jewish center anymore to hold it. It is moving out. Well, but also, also the nature of Judaism is changing. So these philosophical questions, these Greek Hellenistic sort of philosophical ideas are becoming part of the Jewish milieu as well. And so we're getting books like the Wisdom of Solomon that, that are very much using this kind of language. So it's not that this gospel is less Jewish. It's that 
Jewish looks different at the end of the first century. Yeah. Point of understanding. Right. There are also existing Greek-speaking Jewish communities around the Roman Empire uh, who are who are quite assimilated. Right. And who are playing the same kind they of game. They are in this conceptual universe. Uh, yeah. So even if even if John is speaking to Greek-speaking Jews, they speak this language. So, so the question is, the question is, was this written by the Apostle John? As we said way back, for those of you who weren't in the early classes, contemporary scholarship doesn't think any of the Gospels were written by the names attached to them. <laughs> that the names are attached much later, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of John. And, and maybe at the most we could say that these emerged from the communities and the lineage of those apostles, you know, that someone who was in the line of Matthew's teaching gathered and created Matthew's Gospel. But contemporary scholarship does not think these are eyewitness accounts written by the people who walked around with Jesus. These are reflections after the fact. My so who is John? Yeah, that died in exile. Yeah, so called. the question is, who is the John that's being re referenced? Um, there's a tradition that there was a John among Jesus' inner circle of disciples, not John the Baptist. So another Yohanan, who is in, in Jesus' sort of you know, inner circle. And in the Gospel of John, he's often remembered as the beloved disciple, a disciple who is very close to the heart of Jesus. And so um, this text is attributed to that John. Um, there are three epistles in the New Testament who, that are attributed to a John the Elder. And those are clearly written in the school of thought that is represented in the Gospel of John. So the author may not be the same, but they're writing the same very mystical kind of understanding. And then there's a final book of the New Testament, an apocalyptic text called The Revelation to John, um, that uses lots of apocalyptic imagery like you find in the book of Daniel um, or some of the later prophets. That John is called John of Patmos um, because he was exiled and died on the Isle of Patmos. Well, I don't know that he died there, but he was exiled there. Um, he's not, most scholarship today don't think that's the same John of John the Beloved Disciple. Those are two different, we might even have three different Johns here. Um, the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation are written in very different styles, like totally different language. Um, so they definitely don't have the same author. Um, so it's thought that these are two or three different people in the early movement named John. Yeah, that's confusing. So we're at time. We've run out of time for today. Um, I want to suggest that we'll spend a little more time with, with John, John next week, and then we're going to start moving on to the um, uh, crucifixion and, and resurrection narrative for our last couple of classes. Uh, so we'll bring in some texts for you then, but bring these back if you can. I also wanted to mention that our friend and our former leader, Rabbi Miriam Margles, is visiting us. So if you know Miriam, we're happy that she's here. So blessings to you all, and uh, uh, thank you for joining us again today.